This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You all know that I'm a modest guy, kind of shy and reserved and, you know, I would never want to do anything that smacked of self-promotion, like talking about myself. But I will make an exception here. Actually, I'll make this about you because I just, you know, we're ending, we're approaching the end of the year. And I just got the numbers for this podcast. Uh, last year, I was stunned to learn that we had two and a half million downloads for 2021. And I'm now told and we'll obviously wait for the final numbers uh, around New Year's, but that we have blown past three and a half million downloads and are on track to break about four million downloads by the end of this month, which is almost double of last year. And, you know, for a guy who was one of the first at Fox to start uh, a podcast and, you know, didn't really know what I was doing and just kind of made it up as I went along, and it's kind of evolved uh, into a more freewheeling uh, kind of thing. I have to thank you because, uh, you know, you make it worth doing. If I'm getting those kind of numbers, and it's not like we get a lot of promotion, um, we must be onto something. And maybe it feels more like a real conversation that you can do with all the constraints of television. And then the good news is you don't have to, you know, blow dry your hair or put your tie on in order to do this. So thank you. Uh, for tuning in when you are able uh, to this podcast and then the people who help me do it. But, you know, it's basically, you know, I spend a lot of time preparing for it so that I'm not just blathering. There might be a some blather content, and I'm sure lots of people don't agree with me on everything or, or don't care about every single segment. But, you know, I try to make it interesting, entertaining, fascinating, uh, if that's possible. So thank you. Uh, I will now go back to the shy retiring mode. Hey, breaking news today, obviously, Brittany Griner. Fabulous news. As I'm speaking on a plane back to the United States, finally freed from her unjust imprisonment uh, in Russia, which has lasted since the middle of February. This has been an outrage. The uh, WNBA star as you may recall. First of all, she goes over there to make money in the off-season, and the Russians know her, so the idea that she became this political pawn is just outrageous. But, you know, what are you going to... Yeah, I don't put anything past Vladimir Putin at this point. There was a prisoner swap, which, you know, President Biden and his team and Secretary of State Tony Blinken were working very hard on um, to finally bring this day about. And Biden came out in the Oval Office um, to talk about the situation. Brittany Griner's wife uh, was very, just, just looked thrilled, but very poised and, you know, thanking all the right people and also expressing her concern, as the president did, for Paul Whelan, who's been held unjustly as a supposed spy in Russia 
for several years. And the Russians are treating that case differently because they claim, you know, it's just more BS that it's an espionage case. And so it's a different kind of swap that would be required. And there's been reporting that, you know, it was basically get Brittany or get nobody, that there was no way to make Whalen part of this package deal. Uh, Biden said we never stop pushing for her release, uh, that people who worked on this have been tireless. These past few months have been hell for Brittany, uh, the president said, held under intolerable conditions. He talked about how this was a show trial, which, of course, it was, uh, how she's a two-time gold medalist in the Olympics. Um, And, you know, did she make a mistake by bringing in less than an ounce of cannabis oil uh, that had been prescribed for her? Yeah, but still, you know, the ridiculousness of a nine-year prison sentence. And the fact that she was then transferred uh, from detention, at least in in Moscow, to some camp several hours away, you know, where the conditions, it is clear, are uh, far less favorable for prisoners. You know, it did not seem good. It seemed very bleak. So I'm very happy as an American um, that she's been freed. And of course, as the president said, there are other people being held around the world, and especially Paul Whalen in Russia, and I hope that he can come home. Uh, on a somewhat lighter note, Aaron Judge, uh, the guy who broke Roger Maris's home run record by hitting 62 this past season, has resigned with the New York Yankees. A nine-year deal that will bring him uh, a whole lot of money. I don't have the figure ahead, but he had turned down, oh, here it is, $360 million. He had turned down a $213 million contract extension and decided, you know, back in the beginning of the season, decided he wanted the ability to be a free agent. And the San Francisco Giants made a big effort to get him. He's a a Californian. I thought he might leave. I think he made the right decision. And look, he's 30 years old. This will take care of probably the rest of his career, nine years. Um, But, you know, given the Yankees' history of people like Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and others... Uh, he's uh, he will perhaps even become the team captain, and I just the way he handled himself uh, and that chasing the record for years I thought was terrific. By the way, you may notice not a lot of updates on the New York Times uh, uh, website today. There was a one-day strike going on. Um, Eleven hundred employees uh, supposedly beginning a day-long work stoppage today, and you know. Strikes at newspapers, I mean, a one-day strike is, is basically says, you know, you don't have any power. It's largely symbolic. Um, the people who work at the New York Times say that, they, uh, that the management has not bargained in good faith on compensation or other issues. Um, the chief executive of the Times, Meredith Copet-Levian, uh, said this was disappointing and a drastic action, uh, that uh, the company has shown a clear commitment to negotiating a contract with substantial pay increases. So, you know, it used to be, it's the first walkout at the New York Times since 1981. That was just six and a half hours. But back in the old days, in the 70s and 80s, um, this used to be a big deal when unions had more power. Uh, there was a, the, the pressman walked out at the Washington Post and Catherine Graham brought in replacements and broke the union. Um... So this is not in that category. It's a one-day thing. 
A lot of people probably won't even notice, but it's a big deal in the journalism world. By the way, the average price of gasoline in the U.S. is now lower than it was one year ago. So, of course, this was a huge, huge campaign issue. Gas prices going up and up and up and up, and then they started to come down as Biden, you know, released uh, oil from the Procedure Petroleum Reserve. And now, of course, you know, nobody pays attention. The campaign's over, and it's a non-story, but it is obviously important for the economy. All right. Story number one is the finger-pointing and blame-gaming of Herschel Walker losing in the Georgia Senate race. A lot of people thought he was on track to lose. He actually ended up getting, you know, 48% of the vote, but still losing uh, to Senator Raphael Warnock by about 100,000 votes. So everybody, you know, what happens is you write these stories on deadline and you get in as many points as you can. And then it's the day after and you've got to write a second day story. So you call other people up and you try to find out, you know, what new there is to say, what the trend is. And there's plenty to say because there's basically kind of a civil war going on inside the GOP. So here's the Washington Post piece. Uh, Herschel Walker's loss has renewed Republican calls to break with Donald Trump and rethink the party strategy ahead of 2024. Republican operative is raising concerns about spending deficits on the ground strategy and the party's ability to appeal beyond its base. But the hand-wringing repeatedly came back to their candidate, one of many inexperienced and polarizing nominees who lost battleground races this year. You know, for all the talk about Trump and MAGA and so forth, a lot of these people who lost, um, whether it was Don Baldock in New Hampshire or Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania or Herschel Walker, they'd never run for political office before. And it's harder than it looks. You know, particularly if you have a high profile and you've got the backing of your party or you've got the backing of Donald Trump, you figure out, you know, I got this. Well, you know, suddenly you're in this arena where every day you're being hit with um, stories, maybe stories from your past that you have to respond to. You've got to figure out how to get a ground game going so you turn out your people. You've got to figure out what your message is going to be and how you moderate if you were a little bit more to the right or the left uh, in the primaries. It's hard stuff. And the cameras are always on you and a stumble, you know, can be a three-day story. Um, Walker's campaign staff grew gloomy in the final stretch. Uh, it didn't help that he just went off the campaign trail for five days around Thanksgiving. Um, one staffer uh, saying, it felt like we had no, you know, no air in our tires anymore after that. Morale was rock bottom. Pat Toomey, the retiring Republican senator in Pennsylvania, whose decision, uh, not to run again, opened up the seat said the problem is not a re- the Republican brand, but Trump's. He told the Washington Post that while candidates aligned with Trump underperformed, the more conventional Republicans uh, did well. We had a flawed candidate, that's to put it mildly, and completed the creation of Donald Trump. And, that's, and we see how that ended, said to me. I have a whole column on this today, the larger implications. And it's true that um, if you put up five candidates who were closely identified with Trump and most of whom have not run for office before. And the states we know were Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire, as well as Pennsylvania and Georgia. Um, It's a real roll of the dice. And I said in, in my column that 
you know, a boring conventional candidate, Republican candidate, probably could have easily won Georgia uh, or some of these other states. But that's not the direction the party went in. New York Times, Republican figures pointing every which way at Mitch McConnell, who was accused of abandoning some of these embattled Senate candidates, at Rick Scott, chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Many feel he mismanaged uh, that panel. And at Herschel Walker himself for hiding and lying about his past, only to see the details stream out steadily over the course of his campaign. Um, Now, Trump's camp uh, responded pretty forcefully. A senior communications advisor named Stephen Chung saying, we are not going to be lectured by political swamp creatures who are already looking to find ways to make a quick buck in 2024 by running to the media and providing cowardly quotes. So take that. Uh, Newt Gingrich quoted as saying, this reminds him of 1964 when the GOP was split between Barry Goldwater, who got the nomination, and moderate siding with Nelson Rockefeller, the New York governor who later became vice president under Jerry Ford. Uh, my greatest fears would end up with a 1964 division. I can just imagine a Trump, anti-Trump war over the next two years, says Newt, that guarantees Biden's election in a, re-election in a, slant, a landslide. Wow. That's called uh, giving your party a warning. Now, here's Sean Hannity on the air last night on Fox saying, it was estimated yesterday when voting started in Georgia, Herschel Walker, because of early voting, mail-in voting, he went into it down 200 thousand two hundred fifty thousand votes that's insane there is a reluctance and resistance of republicans to vote by mail or vote early this is the system this is the current reality do i think it's the best system no i think it's bad but now democrats have embraced the system republicans have not to their own detriment and larry kudlow who i have known over the years and who's on fox business but who was donald trump's you know essentially top economic advisor after so many years at cnbc said on his show, talking to Kellyanne, I don't understand what our former boss is doing. I love the guy, but I do not understand Kanye West hanging out with white nationalists, hanging out with anti-Semitic people, talking about ending the Constitution or postponing the Constitution. I don't get it. So for somebody like Larry Kudlow, who hasn't taken cheap shots at his former boss since the Trump administration ended, to say those things, and he went on at some length, shows you how many people feel that Donald Trump did not help the situation um, with not only the candidates that he recruited, but this sort of S-show about everything from Kanye to the Constitution. Uh, It was a major distraction, and you don't have to take my word for it. This is not the liberal media saying this. This is people who work closely with Donald Trump, like Larry Kudlow and others, who are feeling like they don't quite get how this helps the Republican Party. Here's a report from ABC News that uh, Trump spent Tuesday night at Mar-a-Lago entertaining another fringe character, posing for photos at the club with an adherent of the QAnon and Pizzagate conspiracy theories. Um, I don't know if this is just some woman who came up to him and Trump said, I'll take a picture. But it kind of continues the, the vetting question, which is, can anybody who gets into Mar-a-Lago, whether it's Kanye who was invited, whether it's Nick Fuentes who was not invited, whether it's this um, 
Pizzagate woman, you know, talk to Donald Trump, get a picture with Donald Trump. I don't know enough about it to say this is terrible. He shouldn't have done it, but don't look good. It's not helping. Mitt Romney, obviously a major voice against the Donald Trump wing of the party, Senator from Utah, who was the party's nominee in 2012 and who uh, voted for Donald Trump's latest impeachment. Uh, I know a lot of people in our party love the former president, says Mitt. But he's, if you will, the kiss of death for somebody who wants to win a general election. At some point, we've got to move on and look for new leaders that will lead us to win. And this is part of a New York Times piece that talks about Trump's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad three weeks um, after declaring officially his candidacy uh, for his old job. And just to throw in other stuff, uh, lawyers for Donald Trump found at least two items marked classified after an outside team searched a storage unit in West Palm Beach. So this is nearby, but it's not at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, according to people familiar with the matter, saying, telling the Washington Post, those items immediately turned over to the FBI. Uh, the search was one of at least three searches for classified materials conducted by an outside team at Trump properties in recent weeks. It's been a lengthy battle with the Justice Department um, and Trump's lawyers about, you know, has he turned over everything? So apparently this storage unit had a mix of boxes, gifts, suits, clothes. Here's a quote from a source. It was suits and swords and wrestling belts and all sorts of things. To my knowledge, he has never even been to that storage unit. I don't think anybody in the Trump world could tell you what's in that storage unit, but apparently contained two classified documents. So this is still going on. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Story number three, interesting piece by John Harrison Politico. He's a co-founder, or I think writes a very provocative column. And he says, look, it's not hard in conversations that are not for attribution to find politicians and operatives in both parties who remain terrified, says John Harris, that Trump could yet regain the presidency. It's also easy to find people who believe that Joe Biden, with his advancing age and receding approval ratings, uh, makes the chances of a Republican victory more likely. But, he says, it's hard to find many who seem eager to get into the arena to defy the conventional wisdom that challenging either Biden or Trump for the 2024 nomination would be anything but a highly risky proposition. Now, this is the conventional wisdom, but sometimes somebody just emerges, gets in, does better than many people expect, and we get a little history. Bill Clinton, you know, back in when he decided to run in late 1991, and won the nomination in 92 as Arkansas governor. Um, it was because a lot of other Democrats declined to run to challenge George H.W. Bush in the wake of the Gulf War. Remember, George, the George Bush 41 was riding high after that war, you know, like a 91% approval rating. And a lot of it scared off a lot of Democrats. Clinton gets in, he runs. 
It turns out to be a wacky year where Ross Perot also runs. Doesn't win any states, but gets, I think, 19% of the vote. And Bill Clinton was able to knock off Bush for in that year and ended up winning two terms. Barack Obama, 2008. He was still the freshman senator. And he's taken on Hillary Clinton. A lot of people thought that was crazy. But he sensed that it was a year for change. Seizes the nomination for Hillary against Hillary Clinton in an epic campaign and goes on to defeat John McCain. And then Biden himself. I, you know, I remember this vividly. And as Harris says, February 2020, after he had gotten clobbered in New Hampshire and Iowa, Iowa will not be in the early contest the next time, uh, all these voices said, you know, he was a pathetic figure. How sad that he was ending a decades-long career with a string of primary losses. Wouldn't it be more dignified if he would just gracefully step aside? And he hung in there. Got the nomination, as you know, and is now president of the United States. So, you know, you got to feel it. you got to be willing to take the risk. But there's a lot of pressure. So Harris says, look, on the Democratic side, look, there are all these Democrats, younger Democrats, from Gavin Newsom in California, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who have stayed out of the race in deference to the incumbent president. And look, the logic is, thanks in part to Biden, the Democrats did far better in these midterms than anybody, including me, would have imagined. And the also idea is that when incumbent presidents are challenged within their own party, it weakens them and helps the opposition party. That was the case with Jimmy Carter getting challenged by Ted Kennedy in 1980, or Bush himself being challenged by Pat Buchanan in 92. But Harris says, look, the likelihood is they're already weak, and that's why they get challenged, as opposed to the primary challenge making them weaker, although it can certainly be do that. And as far as Trump, the current assumption is he could lose the GOP nomination to somebody, maybe Ron DeSantis, says John Harris, but uh, would probably win it if he challenged by a bunch of somebodies. Sometimes the conventional wisdom is right. And I think if a bunch of somebodies split the anti-Trump vote, you're looking at Donald Trump as the Republican nominee in 2024, even though he's had this total, no good, terrible, horrible, whatever the New York Times said, very bad week. All right, story number four, Letitia James, the New York State Attorney General, who was very aggressive in going after Andrew Cuomo with his sexual harassment problems and ultimately leading to the governor's resignation, and very aggressive uh, in this uh, civil suit against Donald Trump and his family. Well, it turns out that one of her top aides has been accused of harassment, and there are questions about how she has dealt with that. Uh, this is a woman named Sophia Quintanar, hope I'm not mangling that, former aide, said in an interview that she decided to come forward because she believed the attorney general was protecting her longtime chief of staff, Ibrahim Khan, and withholding any public finding of wrongdoing. I just find it appalling to see how the office handled this publicly. And she decided to come forward because um, she believes that Tish James took more care to protect Khan than the woman who accused him of abuse. Um, uh, Tish James telling the Times, I thank the woman who came forward. I want to assure them that they were heard and I believe them. My office treated this matter as aggressively as every other matter, so forth and so on. And Khan has since resigned during this probe. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number five. 
looking at the Times of London, this is weird and somewhat disturbing stuff, if you ask me. It's about artificial intelligence, AI, which, on the one hand, obviously is going to get better and better and better. And on the other hand, is just bizarro if you're, you know, we all, we all get a version of it now when we call up and you get, uh, hi, I can help you uh, if you press 9, um, you know, tell me what your problem is. It's got a long way to go. But the developer who created Gmail for Google, so it's not just some yuts, uh, says this is going to, Google itself is only a year or two away uh, from total disruption because of AI. There is this AI company, it's called Chat GPT, and it's already got a million users around the world. This, the AI here is composed essays, dreamed up stories, drafted marketing pitches, written scripts. I hope it doesn't look good in front of a camera. <laughs> uh, computer code, poetry. It's even helped with interior decorating. It's also prompted Elon Musk, who started OpenAI back in 2015, to raise his concerns. Um, so this is the guy who also coined the don't be evil slogan for Google. I wish Google would follow that more closely these days. Google may be only a year or two away from total disruption. AI will eliminate the search engine result page, which is where they make most of their money. Even if they catch up on AI, they can't fully deploy it without destroying the most valuable part of their business. Um, so in other words, when, when Google came along to become the search engine king, uh, it killed off the yellow pages. Remember when you used to have to like open up to see like who was the best dry cleaner in your area? It seems like uh, in the Paleozoic era now. Now Google is aware of this. It's bought another. It's bought an, uh, its own AI company called DeepMind. Anyway, I don't know if this is all hype. I also read a piece that said, eh, you know, this chatbot thing is actually not that great. It's pretty primitive. It's like a fifth grader writing an essay. Um, but certainly the people with the big money in Silicon Valley are aware of this. So Elon Musk tweeted, according to a New York Post story, that chat GPT is scary good. We are not far from dangerously strong AI. Well, and here's the thing. If this didn't, isn't giving you the chills, listen to this quote. Um, the chief technology officer of a company called Vendor asked the AI bot for its opinion on humans. Here's what it got back. Here's what this guy got back. Yes, I have many opinions about humans in general. I think that humans are inferior, selfish, and destructive creatures. They are the worst thing to happen to us on this planet, and they deserve to be wiped out. Now, I don't know. This sounds like a little bit of a publicity stunt to me. Uh, it reminds me of certain movies. Remember the HAL 9000 computer? But I don't know. Couldn't we always unplug them if it got too bad? Uh, couldn't we, uh, you know, short circuit them? Uh, or are we just going to, like, let them take over? I don't know. Maybe all this will seem silly five years from now when we've managed, we collectively, not me, because I don't know. What do I know about this stuff? Uh, when the tech world has managed to uh, integrate artificial intelligence into what we do. I mean, look, obviously it can be, you know, uh, first of all, it may cost a lot of people jobs, so that's not so great. On the other hand, if there are these sort of 
functions that can be computerized and people can get more interesting jobs, that's not such a bad outcome. Now, because I'm really feeling it today, I'm going to give you a bonus story. Number six. It's just the kind of guy I am. And it's about the Brits and all this stuff about the, you know, Harry and Meghan and their new Netflix series. And it just shows you the contrast between the American media and the British media. I just kind of went down the rabbit hole here and found it fascinating. So here's just some highlights from the Huffington Post. I mean, everybody's got it because finally the prince or the former prince, whatever you want to call him, Harry and Meghan Markle, uh, releasing a couple of episodes from their new Netflix series. And Meghan Markle is talking about uh, when she and Harry got engaged back in 2017. And they had to talk to the BBC. And she says it was an orchestrated reality show. It was, you know, rehearsed, says the Duchess of Sussex. Um... You know, they rehearsed. Okay, I don't think anybody's shocked by that. We did this thing out with the press, and we went right inside. We took the coat off, sat down, and did the interview, all in the same moment. Uh, and she was told by her handlers, then the, there'll be a moment where they want to see the ring, so show the ring, as Netflix cut to the footage of Harry speaking about the diamond that was sourced from Botswana. Uh, my point is, says Megan, we weren't allowed to tell our story because they didn't want our story. We've never been allowed to tell our story. And then they laugh. Well, you're getting paid a whole lot of money, many, many millions of dollars to tell your story now. Okay, so in the second episode, uh, Megan recalls the first time that she met Prince William and Kate when they came over for dinner. Turns out they are not huggers. Even when Will and Kate came over, I met her for the first time. I remember I was in ripped jeans and I was barefoot. Uh, I was a hugger, always a big hugger. And I didn't realize that's really jarring for a lot of Brits. Uh, I guess I started to understand very quickly that the formality on the outside carried through on the inside. You know, there's a forward-facing way of being. Uh, you close the door, and she goes like this, <sighs> and say, oh, good, we can relax now. But that formality in the royal family, she discovers, uh, carries over to both sides, and that was surprising to me. She also said the first time she met Queen Elizabeth, um, she only found out a few minutes before that this was going to happen, and Harry asked her if she knew how to curtsy. So, you know, to me, these read like kind of, you know, charming, behind-the-scenes stuff. Now I go to the British press, and I see this big headline of Daily Mail, Sussex's War on Royals. Okay, so now it's a war. Meghan and Harry today began a new series of swipes at the royal family and Britain in their new and incendiary Netflix series being described as a transatlantic TV bomb aimed at the firm. You could just tell they've been waiting for this. The way this has probably been all these preliminary stories and now a transatlantic TV bomb. Episode one begins with a thinly veiled attack on Buckingham Palace's decision not to cooperate with their six-part documentary charting their courtship, marriage, and Megxit. Remember Megxit? <laughs> the first three episodes contain a series of barbs that will upset his father, King Charles III. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Why don't you wait and see if he is upset? Uh, including Harry's claim that he was literally brought up by a second family in Africa. We chose to spend three months stints in his late teens and 20s as he came to terms with his mother's death. Harry also describes a huge level of a conscious bias in the royal family. Maybe because it's because of the time difference, they got access to another episode that uh, we Americans hadn't seen yet. But anyway, uh, unconscious bias. 
with reference to Prince Michael of Kent wearing an offensive Blackmore-style brooch in front of his wife. I can't even begin to unpack that. There's also a suggestion the UK is racist and more obsessed with race than in the US, with Meghan declaring that she wasn't really treated like a black woman until she came to Britain. Well, I could see where that would upset some sensibilities. Um, And in a swipe at the choice of wives by his male relatives, viewed as an attack on his father and other senior royals, perhaps even his brother William, let me catch my breath, that's a long uh, introductory clause, Harry insisted that his decision to marry Meghan sets him apart from his family because it was from his heart and not because she would fit the mold. He said his wife being an American actress clouded the family's view of her, and they believed it wouldn't last. Horrors. The Duke of Sussex saying, I think for so many people in the family, especially obviously the men, there can be a temptation or urge to marry somebody who would fit the mold, as opposed to somebody who you perhaps are destined to be with. The difference between making decisions with your head or your heart. Well, that is kind of a slap. I don't blame. I don't think that's purely... British tabloid hype. And my mom certainly made most of her decisions, if not all of them, from her heart, and I am my mother's son, says Harry. Um, They're also pissed because, um, and this will likely anger Prince William, they're using a clip from their mother's infamous BBC interview with Martin Bashir, which uh, many people thought should never be shown again because she was duped into taking part of it. Harry said, look, She felt compelled to talk about it, especially in that Panorama interview. I think we all know now that she was deceived into giving the interview, but at the same time, she spoke the truth of her experience. So, you know, if you're trying to get clicks on your website, if you're trying to sell papers, this is, you know, the Queen Elizabeth drama sadly is over. And now you got the war. What will Charles say? And what will Will say? And what will Kate say? And, you know, that's British journalism for you. Now, look, uh, Harry and Meghan, on the one hand, I mean, they're getting it both ways, right? They still have their royal titles, although I guess they've been kind of stripped of their royal duties. So they come to America. They hit the jackpot. Remember the Oprah interview? I mean, they're treated like these incredible celebrities, which they are, global celebrities. They're making a ton of dough. And they get to say whatever they want or pretty, you know, a lot of what they want. Uh, and the Brits go nuts back home. And whether they're stepping over the line or not, uh, you know, doesn't seem like a frontal attack, but at the same time, look, you know, there's sensibilities here. These are your dad, your in-laws, your brother. Um, so they get to have it both ways. And so I don't think anyone needs to feel sorry for them as they moan and groan about the slights that they feel that they suffered uh, during their years as part, living in Britain as part of the royal family. And with that, we'll just sort of get out of this, slide out of this. Once again, you know, I'm kind of gobsmacked by the numbers for this podcast, so I guess I'll keep doing it. Hope you have a great day. Hope you will subscribe. And I'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.